Well, here we are. Um, I think Toby's wrong in saying that, that no one would be at the Patriots table if you went where you cheered, right? No? Okay. <laughs> anyway, great to be. I don't know what it is about Super Bowl Sunday. It kind of feels like a holiday today. I, it just, it's one of those things. It just feels like a holiday day. So um, anyway, well, we're going to jump right into the book of Luke. We're near the beginning of a series where we'll be going pretty much verse by verse through the book of Luke, and uh, it is going to take us a long time, um, but uh, we'll, we'll take some breaks along the way, but we're looking forward to that. So um, let me just say a couple of things about, uh, as, because we're at the beginning of this, and uh, we're going to take our time to unpack the book of Luke and, and just understand it. So let me just make a couple notes. For those of you who prefer, uh, you're a note taker, you like to uh, write things down, I want to encourage you to possibly... Um, during this series, bring in a notebook or a journal um, and use that for your notes for this. Um, and instead of maybe, I know some of you like to get the handout each week, but it probably ends up at home on a pile of other handouts. I know that's normally how they work. So when we're trying to understand this, uh, a Bible and a book of the Bible a little bit more, uh, it would be a good practice for you. Just grab your own notebook and, and keep it in there. And those are sometimes fun to look back Maybe years down the road, you see something that you, were learned, you learned or you're challenged by or something like that. So I encourage you to do that um, for the, this series. And also, if you want to go deeper, if you're just like, you say, hey, I'm an auditory learner. I just sit and listen, and that's all I need. Uh, that's fine, too. Um, but I do encourage you throughout the week, we, we provide um, what we call daily encounters, and they can be emailed out to you each day. Just a couple verses to think about and read. It'll give you a little bit deeper understanding for those of you who want to go a little deeper. So that's just a couple things uh, that might be good for you to help uh, understand this a little more. Um, As we get started here in the book of Luke now, uh, what I want to do is we're going to, because we're going through this verse by verse, one of the reasons we do that is not just to gain an understanding of this book, but um, to to be taught it, but we also want to learn the principles of, as you're reading through scripture on your own, what are the questions you ask, what are things that you can, will help you understand, and one of the first things, whenever you get to a book of the Bible that you want to understand, it's important that we start with, well, who's writing it and why, so today I want to jump right into the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, today we're mostly going to be in chapter 3, but uh, it's important that we understand this as we start, so I want to invite you to turn there. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible if you're new to using the, the Bible, and as always, you're welcome to use a digital version. We're okay with that. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off and says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus. So I'm um, expectant parents looking for ideas. There you go, there's a name idea. <laughs> so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. So it, when the book of Luke starts off in this verses 1 through 4, Luke is writing and he says, hey, I've investigated all this stuff. I've researched I'm trying to understand this, and the purpose of my writing is I wanted to talk to eyewitnesses. I wanted to talk to other people who've been saying these stories and get an accurate account so that I can communicate to you and let you know about this person of Jesus. 
is what we find out what it's about. Now Luke goes on to also write the book of Acts. And the book of Acts also is about the early church, so the first Christians and how that movement grew. Um, Luke has actually, he writes more of the New Testament than any other author by volume. So, uh, but what we find about Luke is he's a very thorough, kind of think of him more of like an investigative journalist. He wants to know the details, he wants to record it accurately. Uh, He's not a blogger just sharing ideas, Uh, uh, but he's actually researching and, and, and getting this information. Now, the other part of it is he's writing to this guy named Theophilus, who uh, is, it's a Roman name, and so there's somehow he's writing to somebody probably prominent, or at least somebody in the Roman government or in the Roman world. And so um, you've got to understand a little bit who wrote, why he wrote it, and then maybe even who's it written to. Now, one other thing that we'll find that I want you just to say at, at the very beginning, to keep in mind throughout the book of Luke, is the theme of the book of Luke. He particularly focuses on the idea of Jesus bringing salvation to all people. And we find that right in the beginning when he says, hey, to Theophilus, here's a Roman. Now, each of the gospel writers, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each of them have a little bit different target or a little different theme that they focus on. They're all the same story and same truth, but they focus on different things. And Luke really focuses on the story of God's salvation to all people. And uh, so when we're reading these stories, and if you're digging in throughout the week, kind of keep that theme in mind and see how that pops up over and over again. So that's just kind of a couple things that I want us to keep in mind for the context of the book of Luke as we get started. Now I want to invite you to turn over to chapter 3. And uh, before we even get into today's text, uh, that was, by the way, the creative intro for today's sermon. That was it. That was the, the, the... Creative, funny story. No, it was just, we're just jumping right in. So let's pray as we get started. God, we thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you so much that uh, there's people who were very thorough and accurately wrote these things down that we are not left to wonder about you, but we have a recorded history. And so God, I pray that these words wouldn't just be words that make us feel smarter or fill our heads with knowledge, but that they would be words that transform our lives. Because ultimately, that's what it's about. So God, we thank you. We ask that we will see you more clearly and that you would change our hearts and our lives today. In your name, amen. Okay, book of Luke chapter 3. So the context here now, Luke is writing and his theme is salvation for all people. If you're wondering why we're in chapter 3, uh, last week we, kept, we got one story in chapter 2. And the first two chapters are really the birth of Jesus, which we talked about in Christmas time. So now here we are, really getting the series going, last week in this one, and we're in Luke chapter 3. The previous story, we saw Jesus was 12 years old, and now we're going to fast forward to probably when he's around 30 years old. We're not sure exactly, but somewhere in there, uh, according to Luke, he says somewhere around there. But let's get started, Luke chapter 3, verse 3. We're jumping right in today. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and he goes on to give you a few more names. All the way into ver- chapter, verse 2, he says, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, this is why I think sometimes people stop reading scripture, because they just jump in and they start seeing all these names and things and can't pronounce it and go like, ah, forget it. <laughs> I don't understand it. Anytime you see that, there's... there's always a reason you're getting names. And it's to set, again, to set a context. And really what Luke is doing is he wants you to know when this happened. 
So by mentioning these governors and, and Tiberius Caesar, who was uh, the Caesar on the throne at the time, even over when Christ uh, was crucified, um, he's trying to give you a date that when it started. And when we narrow this down, it is very accurate. It's probably around year 29. So just so you know, 29 AD or CE, if you're in the academic uh, college world. So in year 29, it's about when all of this happens. And notice he mentions not only the Roman government, but he, wrote, he mentions the leaders who are over Israel, when you have Herod the Tetrarch, and then you have um, Caiaphas, who's the high priest. So he's giving you the context of even the religious world. And all of this does match up accurately with history and other historians. Uh, there's one name um, mentioned in there, uh, Lasanius, who actually cannot be found in history, but it doesn't take away. That just makes people say, huh, who is he referring to? We're not sure who that is. But it doesn't take away. He knew something that didn't, someone who didn't survive history. So we should say it that way, only here. Uh, so we know about 29. Now, it says, The word of the Lord God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And John came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this story begins, he's talking about a guy named John. His last name is the Baptist. Um, if you... If you're familiar with uh, uh, the, Christ, uh, the Christmas, not the Christmas story, Christian story, if you're familiar with scripture here, this is the guy we, for, we refer to as John the Baptist. And so he, Luke is writing and saying in year 29, John begins his public ministry. Now he begins it in the region and district around uh, the Jordan. So we want to understand a little bit of context of, okay, what's happening with John as well? That's something we want to know. So uh, I have a few things for you. One is, uh, here's a map of the area. And now, I, I need to make a disclaimer, too. As we start off, there's going to be a lot of information. Uh, so those of you who like the history and all that stuff, um, those of you who don't like it, just smile and nod for a moment. But we want to give you some context so that you can understand what's happening here. This is the region of probably um, modern-day Israel. Uh, for the most part, would be the green. It's, uh, there's some other regions that are no longer Israel. But this is Israel at the time of Christ. And uh, if you the body of water at the bottom of your map is the Dead Sea, and the body of water near the top is the Sea of Galilee. And the river that connects them, that is the Jordan River. So most of that is everything in, in the story of Christ happens roughly in this green area. And um, John is preaching in, in the wilderness of the Jordan, which means the area around the Jordan River. Um, and so that is basically the ministry of John. Uh, just for a little more context, right at the tip of the Dead Sea, if you go to your left, you'll see a Jerusalem exists there. So that's the, roughly where Jerusalem is, and then Galilee, where Jesus spends a lot of his ministry, is in the north. And uh, that is, I think, roughly the size of New Jersey, if you want to know and to contextualize to our world. So uh, that's kind of the, uh, the whole region of, where, of what's happening. Now, why is it important to know where John was from? Um, part of it might not be all that important, but there's, uh, there's some more insight that we can get from this. There's something else that happened there near what is the north of the Dead Sea. Now, if you go to Israel today, and my family, we live there, and I've taken tours there, you will often have, there's a baptismal site if you want to be baptized in the Jordan River, and a lot of people do it in a place up by the Sea of Galilee, right on the south side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place, there's wonderful trees um, it's, it's, you know, they've made it really nice to get in the water and, and to be baptized. In fact, I baptized groups there in that area. Um, I don't think that's the actual site 
Um, but the baptisms still count. It's okay. But uh, <laughs> it's probably more. There's another site near the Dead Sea that's also known as, as a traditional site of where Jesus was baptized. This one to this day, you can still be baptized there. The water's a little dirtier. Um, there's no shade. It's kind of open. It's in the desert. But it's probably a lot closer. There's some graffiti there. It said Jesus was here. And so that area is probably more likely where the baptism spot was. Now, it doesn't really matter where Jesus was baptized, but to give you some context. Now, something else on the top of the Dead Sea in that region, there's an area there called the Caves of Qumran. And in the Caves of Qumran, in 1947, they found a thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And maybe you've heard of these. The Dead Sea Scrolls actually contain at least one portion of every single book of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther. So every single book except for one, has been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Almost in their entirety, the book of Isaiah was found, almost in its entirety. And that's in the region north of the Dead Sea. Now, it is believed that a group of people called the Essenes, who really were very religious, who cared a lot about preserving the story, that they lived in that region north of the Dead Sea, and that they... Uh, uh, meticulously recorded scripture and kept all these scrolls. In addition to the Bible, there's tons of other writings that they found in these caves. And because it was uh, low temperature or uh, low humidity and the conditions were just right that these documents were preserved for 2,000 years. But they found them in that region. Now, in that region, I believe that John actually probably was at one point studied with or had some influence by the Essene people. Because when we look at their writings and the things that they thought were important, their words mirror the words of John almost perfectly. A lot of John's teaching fits with the teachings of the Essenes. Now what they believed was they were very religious, they were very committed to their faith, um, but they believed that the, the priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem became very uh, kind of corrupt and that they preached more of a decentralized faith, like we shouldn't be centered only on the temple in Jerusalem, but it should be more about our lives and our hearts with God. And so, and they preached about uh, the kind of things like sons of light, and they preached about repentance for forgiveness of sins, and all these things that pop up in the book of John. I mean, in the teachings of John, excuse me. And so, we, I believe that John studied with them. But now there's one thing that they did that John did not believe in, as they were uh, seclusionists. They believed that it should just be for themselves and they wanted to depart from the rest of society. So they said, we have the truth of God, let's keep it to ourselves, let's hide out in the desert and let's live here and not be corrupted by anyone else. Where John said, if this is our message, it needs to be out for all people. And so John, probably in that region north of the Dead Sea, then went out to the wilderness and began teaching. Now, uh, Right away. So what was John's mess? So that's a context of John's life. And now, what is his mission is the next question. So he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it was written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet. In the book of Isaiah, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness will make ready the way of the Lord. He'll make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads will be smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. So we find that John's coming out of this. And now what is his mission? <clears throat> Excuse me, his mission. His mission was to prepare people's hearts for the Lord. And he's preaching in that, doing that by saying he's preaching a baptism for forgiveness of sins. 
Now, John's, what he's preaching is what the Essenes preached, was baptism isn't the thing that is going to save you. In fact, the Essenes said this in one of their writings. They said, no one may enter the water of baptism unless he is repented of his evil because the uncleanliness will cling to all the transgressions of his word. In other words, the baptism that the Essenes preached was one that said, this is just symbolic of the work of God in your life. The water you enter into and come out of isn't what makes you clean. It's God transforming your heart. And so they preached a repentance before baptism. Now, even in the Essenes, I have a picture here. This was from the area near Qumran, and this is what we call a mikvah. And again, those of you who like all this info, just eat it up now, because we're going to keep going in a minute. But, so the mikvah is, to this day, it's in the Jewish faith, and it's a ritual purity bath. And you'd walk down on one side of the stairs, fully submerge yourself under the water, and, and by the way, you'd be in your birthday suit. And then you turn around and you, I just like throwing that detail out when people say, you don't baptize the right way. We want to do it biblically. Like, well, <laughs> I don't know if you do. All right, so, so they would walk down on one side, turn and walk out of the water, fully submerged. And that was ritual cleansing. And that was the beginning of Christian baptism. And, but what they preached was, it's not going into the water that makes you clean. It's the transformation of God in your heart. And baptism was a symbol. Now, and that was a break from what happened in the temple, where there's a mikvah that looks just like this near the, uh, the second temple that's still in Jerusalem to this day. And that was that ritual cleansing. said, go into the water and you come out clean. But the Essenes and John said, no, it's God's God. You need to repent of your sins and let God transform your heart. And then this is just a symbol. So that's the message he has. Now, his mission, is, when he's bringing this message, is according to the book of Isaiah. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And at the end of it, he has this. I have it on the screen for you. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. They will see God's glory in whoever he's preparing his way for somebody. Now, I also like this language of Isaiah. It said all the roads will be made smooth. They'll be, the crooked roads will be straight. The hills will be knocked down and the valleys will be filled up. Obviously, John's not knocking down hills and filling up valleys. But this was symbolic language when a king was about to go on a mission. So if, a, if, the Caesar, if Caesar was going to visit Israel, the soldiers would go out in advance and they would straighten the roads and they would smooth out all the dips in the road and they'd knock down all the high points to make and make the road as smooth as possible for the king. So when Isaiah says, someone is going to prepare the way for the Lord and make the way straight, what he's saying is he's preparing the way for royalty, for God coming in flesh. This is King Jesus. This isn't just an ordinary person. This isn't just a wise man or some guru that John is preparing your hearts for. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So John's mission was to prepare people's hearts for Jesus who would appear and so that all the world could see God's salvation, the glory of the Lord revealed in Jesus. Now, let's get back into it here and see what was John's message. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Now this is, if you, if you ever want to start a church, you know, start off with these words here and you'll, the crowds will flock to you. So John began saying to the crowds who were going to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, an axe is already laid at the foot of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, that preaches there, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, come on, you need to change your ways. You guys, are, I mean, you are going to face judgment. Look at your life. The axe is at the root of the tree, ready to chop you down and throw you into the fire. Let's plant a church today. Come on. <laughs> so that's how John begins his message. And what's interesting, and the way I think of it is this, is John begins with the bad news. John begins with helping people understand what the bad news is. You see, because Scripture reminds us of this all the time. It starts, the the beginning of all scriptures gives us a picture of perfection, of paradise, of harmony with God and with man. But then sin enters in. So you have creation and then you have the fall of man. And the bad news is, once sin enters, that we don't have, we no longer have what God intended for us. We're missing out on the completeness of what God has and, and we fall short and our lives now are marred with sin and they're marred with uh, struggles or marred with pain and imperfection and all this stuff. And John reminds them of the bad news. He starts off with that. And it's good for us sometimes to remember the bad news. The bad news is, hey, we, we lost what God had for us as people. But I love the progression here. So he starts with the bad news and says, you got to change your ways because you, you're in trouble. And look at the response of the crowds. In verse 10, the crowds were questioning him and said, well, what should we do then? And he'd answer them and say, well, the one who has two coats is to share with him who has none. And the one who has food is to do likewise. And then the tax collectors came to John to be baptized. And they said, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than what you've been given. And then some soldiers questioned him and said, what about us? What should we do? And he said, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. It's interesting here, the the progression. So John starts off with the bad news. You you all are falling short. That's how he starts off, his little self-help talk. (laughs) But people's, then their response is, well, what, tell us what we need to do to make up for the life that we're living. Tell us what will get us so we no longer are falling short. What people wanted was more law. Tell us what rules we need to become holy. So he gives them rules. A a little side note that I loved here, this also is the book of Luke, is he starts with the crowds. The, the, probably the common people. It's the masses. They came to him. And then the next group Luke mentions are the tax collectors. These are the Jewish people who have one foot in the Roman world. They're working for Rome and collecting taxes. So they're kind of known as people who are betraying their country. And then the third group is Roman soldiers. Whether they're Roman or Jewish soldiers, they're soldiers working for Rome. They're fully in that world. Totally turn their back. So you have the Jewish people, the people with one foot, foot in both worlds, and people who are saying, we're not even Jewish anymore. We're working for Rome. The message of Luke is salvation is for all people. It's open to all people. But look what people want. What is the rules we can follow to make up for this? Isn't it interesting how it's so human nature to first go to, okay, what's the solution? Let me fix it. <laughs> 
Just tell me, okay, what's the problem? What's the solution? Let me just do it. Just tell me what I need to do. Some of you are task people, and you probably even have this conversation in your marriages, don't you, from time to time, of just, okay, tell me what you need me to do. Guys, we say that all the time. Like, just tell me. Tell me exactly what I'm supposed to say here. You know, we just want, we want the law. <laughs> tell me what I need to do to, to make up for my shortcoming here. That's what the people wanted to know from John. What should we do? What will make us holy? So John gives them a little bit of law. The thing is, at this point in the story, though, is Israel's had a couple thousand year history of the law not working. The rules weren't working. The reason they needed to repent is because the law wasn't, they couldn't follow it. They kept falling short. So the story continues. So he gives them bad news. He gives them a temporary solution. But then we're introduced to the permanent solution. While the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, and this is the word for Messiah, whether John is the one who God, the, the prophets have been predicting, whether John was the one coming to, to save people from their sins, as the prophets said, they're saying, maybe he's the one who's going to do this for us. And John answered them and said, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap on his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Stop right there. So John starts, again, bad news. He goes to temporary solution. And then he begins pointing them to the real solution. The real good news. There's someone else coming who actually will solve what you need today. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah who's going to show up here in just a moment. The permanent solution. Now, in this language, there's some cool things. John actually says, someone else greater than me is coming. I am not the answer to your sins. I am not going to save you. Someone else is coming who will save you, is what he's saying. And I'm not even fit to untie the strap on his sandals. Another interesting side note is, there was an old saying by the rabbis that said, if you are a student, the student should serve his master in every single way except for one except for never stoop so low as to untie the strap on your master's sandals. Interesting side note that Jesus one day untied the sandals of his own disciples. John here is saying, listen, I know you think that it's too low of me to even untie someone's sandals, but listen, the person coming, you don't understand. This is God in flesh. This is the Messiah. I'm not even fit to touch the sandals. I'm not even fit to be the slave of this person. You have to know this person who's coming, he is the answer to your questions, to your problems, to all of it. He's the answer. He is the solution. So John says, Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming. Then he said, my, my baptism was just symbolic. I baptize you with water. It's just a symbol it's an outward display of what God's doing. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is biblical language. He's not saying you're literally baptized with fire. But what, the idea of this, what this means is, it's probably referring to a verse in Malachi chapter uh, 3, verse 2 and 3, where it's saying, using this idea that God's fire will be the judgment that will cleanse you. 
In other words, going to remove evil in the world once and for all. Cleanse you from your sins. His baptism of fire is saying Jesus is coming and is going to be the permanent solution and the end to evil in your life and in the world. And he will also empower you by his Holy Spirit. These in Greek are linked together. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. God is going to, he is going to do this. Jesus is bringing it to you. And then as he goes on, look at verse 17 and 18. He gets back into his um, favorite theme. Jesus says, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff in unquenchable fire. Again, he dropped into uh, church planting and church growth strategy there. But see as it goes on in verse 18. John said, and with many other, or Luke writes, with many other encouragements, John preached the gospel to all the people. See, John was reminding people of the message of Jesus. The permanent solution is coming. There's good news. It's going to be available for you and for all people. Now, I want you to notice something here about the good news. Is the good news of Jesus, when we say that, and, and the other word for it is gospel. So if we say gospel, what we're referring to, it's the Greek word. It means good news. A messenger who brings good news. The message is the gospel, good news. The gospel is something, the good news is something that should transform and change our lives. John is preaching that. But we have a tendency to make it about just changing our behavior. Tim Keller writes, and he says, the gospel is not moral conformity, nor is it just self-discovery. What he means by that is the gospel isn't just moral transformation, like what are the rules, if, if I believe the good news of Jesus, tell me what behaviors I need to change. And when we reduce the good news just down to, we need to behave and perform to measure up to the message of Jesus. That's moral conformity. And it falls short. Keller goes on to say, moralistic people have a God who is holy and demanding, and they need to try very hard to know and to please that God. See, if the gospel's just about moral conformity, we are always going to be working to make sure God is pleased with us. And we're always going to be thinking, which sins do I need to remember to confess? Because I probably had some, so I need to make up for those. So I need to confess every sin I've ever committed. And, you're, and as soon as you do that, you go, oh, I think I just had another one. And so moral conformity is you're, you, you have these rules that you need to follow to measure up to the message of good news. Keller warns us against that. But he goes on to say, it's also not just self-discovery. The gospel isn't just, God is so loving, he loves you right where you are, so that's it. So don't, your life should never be transformed or changed because God is love. Now we believe here that God loves you right where you are. We believe that he loves you in your imperfections. We believe that because of Christ, he stands in place for all of your past sins, your current sins, and your future sins. That's biblical. We believe that God's love, you cannot be separated from the love of God. But we also believe that because of the great thing that God has done for us, that his life in us does make a difference and transforms who we are. It changes who we are. I've shared stories of being on the basketball court and how I see how God has changed how I respond, even in competition with other guys. It's very different than it used to be 20 years ago. It's different than it used to be a few years ago. The way I coach kids when I coach baseball, it's different because of Jesus. 
it actually has changed me. And it's not because I show up and I start off and go, okay, what are the rules? Jesus, what are the rules of how I should be a coach? No, my life has been transformed where I no longer find my identity in getting that plastic trophy for a 10-year-old. It's not in that anymore. It's not in what I can take and what I can, you know, find some sort of security in that. But it's God, you've given me an opportunity to be an influence and in, influence in the people's lives and the family's lives. So let me do this in a way that you be pleased. My life is different, but not because of law, but because of grace of Jesus has changed me. So Keller reminds us that the gospel is not moral conformity, but it's not just self-discovery. The biblical God is infinitely holy and infinitely loving. His grace is costly. That is why it's so moving. When we realize that God is so holy that he just can't shrug off evil. He can't just say, oh, evil, it's fine. If you're, you're involved in sin, that's fine. He, he's so holy, he can't just shrug it off. But he's so loving that he was glad to come and live the life for you that you couldn't live and to die in your place so you may become holy. See, when we believe the gospel, the good news is that, that because God loves us so much that he stepped in to give us life that we couldn't earn on our own, that that brings change in us. That produces the change. So G, or John in his message is there's bad news, but here comes the good news. It's in Jesus. Now, let's continue on and finish this up here. We're going to skip down to verse 21. And, and all the other, uh, the writers of the Gospels mention the story of Jesus' baptism, and they have more details, but Luke does it pretty quickly. We're going to go down to verse 21. The reason why we're skipping a couple verses is that's for a story later in. Uh, John actually gets arrested, but we'll talk about that in, in a few weeks. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now, one side note. Again, don't have time to get into it all together. But when you're reading through Scripture and you see something like this, we develop, this is one of the verses that helps us understand the doctrine, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, or God exists in three and one. See, in this place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned. They exist at the same time. When you have a confusing thing in Scripture, like the idea of Trinity, anytime you come to something that indicates at least part of that, you want to remember it and say, oh, this is part of that idea of the Trinity. And also know that we never base a complete doctrine on one verse. If this was the only verse, it would be very confusing. Now, the idea of the Trinity is very confusing, even with all the verses. But here's one that helps us say, well, okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist at the same time. So it's not God shift-shaping. This, this is not him just like changing who he is from time to time. There's three that exist at the same time, but we also know that there's only one God. Uh, so the Trinity is mentioned here. Confusing, yes. We could teach the entire year about the Trinity, and at the end of it, you'd probably still say, okay, I don't get it. <laughs> One of the things I find comfort in is that there's so much about God that we can know, but there's so much we don't understand. If God was completely understandable, he would not be infinite. It's okay to leave some room for, re for mystery and some questions and to struggle through it. So this is one of the things. We're not going to talk about 
explain all the Trinity now, but this is one of the verses you should just mark. If you study in your Bible or take notes, just say, oh, Trinity verse, and then keep compiling those ideas. All right, so Jesus is baptized. Now, here's a question for you. Why do you think Jesus was baptized? If baptism was a sign of repentance from sin and new life, why would Jesus get baptized? And even John, actually, in another account in the book of Matthew, Jesus shows up to be baptized, and John said, no, 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 Messiah. (laughs) I'm not going to baptize you. You baptize me. Are you kidding me? Who's going to baptize Jesus? That's pressure. (laughs) And Jesus says, no, this has to happen this way. So the question is, why did it have to happen? Jesus wasn't being baptized because he was repenting of sin because we believe he lived a perfect life being God in flesh. He didn't have sin. The only human to ever exist and not have sin is Jesus. So what did he get baptized for? A couple of thoughts here. First one is this. He wanted to identify with sinners. He wanted to identify his life with your life and with mine. He wanted to make a statement to say, I have come here for you. I am going to live this life with you. I am walking and going through the life like you go through this life. And I'm identifying my life with yours. See, because it's not just Jesus' death on the cross that means something to us. It's the life that he lived. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He did that on our behalf so that his sacrifice was complete. But he wanted to identify with us and say, I am living this life for you, the life you can't live. So the first thing was he was identifying with us as sinners. You can write a side note there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21 kind of gives us a a better idea of this. So Jesus lived a life. He becomes our righteousness. He becomes our perfection for us. So you can unpack that on your own or if you read the daily encounters this week. So the first thing, why he was baptized, to identify with us. The second part is this. This is where God the Father affirms his mission And he begins his public ministry. Look at this here. It says, The Holy Spirit descended on him on bodily form like a dove. What did that look like? I have no idea. Was this just just a vision? Was there actually a dove, you know, flying around? Was it some? We don't really know. But all the writers say, okay, this is what happened here. And the voice that was heard was, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. God the Father is affirming God the Son, Jesus' mission, saying, this mission you are starting, this is our plan. This is not a mistake. And I am saying, you are the Son, and I'm affirming what you do. From this point on, your mission, I'm behind you. Notice here, what had, and he says, in you I'm well pleased. Does anyone know, according to Scripture, what Jesus had accomplished in his life before this point, as far as his ministry and his mission? Before this. What great healings did Jesus perform? What sinners did he save? What did he do before this moment? And according to Scripture, nothing. Other than being born. Yet, he had yet to accomplish anything, yet God the Father says, I am well pleased with you. You see, the point here is our identity precedes our activity. We often get that turned around. 
And we think our activity creates our identity. We think what we do makes us who we are. Now, what we do often is a reflection of who we are. But here we're seeing God the Father is saying, the, my, I am well pleased with my son. It is about my love for him. It is about my mission I've sent him on. It's flowing from me. And from this point on, Jesus' activity follows his identity. How many of you are here this morning and need to be reminded that it isn't your activity that creates your identity, but it's your identity that comes from God given to you and your activity flows from that. Just this week, my wife and I were talking this morning about the tragedy of another, another teenager up in uh, Orange County who took his life. And the letters that were revealed from this show that it was just the pressure of trying to measure up. It was not being able to, to you know, always needing to get 4.5 grade point average, getting into the right school, performing well in sports, even in a context of healthy family and good parents. The speculation really is that part of it is social media. It's just saying, I feel so much pressure everywhere I look. We just can't measure up. Because when we start believing that it is our activity that makes us who we are, that becomes a burden that none of us can bear. It makes a burden that none of us can bear. And, and I love social media, and at the same time, I hate it because it is creating, even in, I, I look at like wedding photos now, which all look like magazine covers, and, and you see them posted online, and then I look, my wife and I look at ours, we're like, wow, this is not a magazine cover, <laughs> and, but you look at how it just, it's always beautiful, right? It's, you always, people go on vacation, I'm like, why are their vacations so perfect? It never rains when other people go on vacation, no one ever says like, hey kids, I'm going to take a picture of all you fighting in the back of the car right now. We're going to post this. This is awesome. In the middle of the desert in Arizona, loving this vacation. <laughs> Wish I was at work. We don't say that stuff. I would love if a young family just posted a picture of walking into their baby's room and just having the you know, diaper exploded everywhere. I mean like real life right here. Right? But all we see is like the beautiful pictures. And we, we are creating a culture where we think activity cre- creates identity. And it's, we cannot measure up to it. Even in our religion. As the worship team starts making their way up. Sometimes we show up in our church gatherings and we worship. And we think, well, I know that I sinned this last week. But I'm listening to everyone else and... And they're all saints. They're all perfect. I, I, I would like to be in a Bible study, but I, they make me feel dumb. Everyone else knows everything about Scripture, but I don't. And we think that we only see the snapshot of perfection. In the message of the good news that we find here, and it's even demonstrated in Jesus, is it's the identity of the Father that gives us our name. And the activity flows from there. And actually, that's the thing that will transform and change us, too. When we truly remember what that identity means. And so this morning, as we end our time and we respond with a song and we respond in worship here, the question for you is, 
what is it that you've been believing as the good news? Do you think the good news is you measuring up and somehow becoming holy enough on your own? Or this morning, do you need to be reminded that the good news is that you don't, but yet God does and Jesus does. And he came so that you do measure up. And from that, our lives become a response. Our activity flows from our identity, not the other way around. And so we're going to end our time, and, and we also will be taking offering right now and during this time. And even that is not to get anything. It's a response in what we've been given. And so as we end our time here, I just want to ask you to take a moment to just reflect. And what does, do you need to hear today from God the Father? So pray with me. God, we thank you so much for the message of Jesus. We thank you that in the midst of a story filled with bad news, that you showed up to be the good news. And this is just the very beginning of the story we're studying, but we're seeing that you already are stepping in and being everything that we couldn't be. And Lord, I thank you even for the reminder of you speaking the identity over Jesus and saying he's well pleased because it comes from you. It begins with you. And so this morning, Lord, let us be reminded that who we are comes from you. And Lord, so I pray that we would be a community of people who are being transformed because of your work in our lives. And Lord, re release us. Free us from the burden of trying to measure up Release us from the burden of trying to make our activity be what defines us, but let you define us. So, Lord, right now we ask that you'd speak to each of us. Let us hear the words we need to hear from your spirit this morning. Change our hearts and lives. In your name.